with all due respect, I don't get confused. So declared Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, after White House officials suggested she didn't understand the Trump administration's policy plans when it came to sanctions on Russia. On Sunday, Haley had said on Face the Nation that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin would be unveiling new sanctions the very next day to punish firms that were bolstering the Assad regime in Syria. But President Trump once again flinched, and the sanctions that had already been approved were shelved. Was it Haley who was confused, or a Trump White House that can't get its story straight? And why is it that every time the administration takes tough measures to punish Russia, his officials are quickly undercut by Trump himself? We'll talk about that with the Obama administration's former sanctions czar, a now-retired career diplomat who is one of the U.S. government's top experts on Putin's regime on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, Dan, uh, some many years ago, the famed journalist Jimmy Breslin wrote a book called The Gang That Can't Shoot Straight. Um, and um, you wonder whether that wouldn't be a great title uh, for uh, the story of the Trump White House right now, especially after this Nikki Haley fiasco the other day. Well, what I love about it um, is... Uh, 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 Lawrence Kudlow, a, a White House official, um, went out there and said that Nikki Haley, you know, had a, a momentary confusion, um, and uh, to which she responded acidly, uh, I, "I don't get confused." Uh, really, uh, what the story is here, uh, other than uh, Trump's um, um, kind of uh, continued love affair with with R- Russia and the Putin regime, um, is that this White House was terribly confused um, and you know uh, completely botched. Uh, the the rollout of this policy. Um, and so um, it is the gang uh, that can't shoot straight. I mean, there's always that question um, when uh, when, you know, things look, you know, you, you know, look like uh, like there's a scandal or, or uh, you know, improprieties. Is it incompetence um, or or is it uh, malfeasance um, um, and uh, and skullduggery? Um, and, uh, you know, who knows? It may be all of those things. Uh, well, we're going to talk about all that with uh, uh, Ambassador Daniel Freed, who was uh, in charge of sanctions policy for many years. But before we get to that, we got to uh, go over just a couple of uh, big developments this week. Uh, Jim Comey and his, and his big book, Long Awaited, uh, and his uh, media blitzkrieg going on. What's your take on uh, Comey's... Uh, well, look, so I, I got to say uh, the book is uh, short on revelations. Um, most of what's out there is stuff that we already knew. And if you take that um, and combine it with the fact that this is a guy 
who sort of carefully and almost obsessively cultivated this image of probity and purity as the sort of above-the-law, um, ramrod-straight prosecutor. Um, and now he's on this incredibly high-profile media tour. Um, he's going on The View. He's you know talking about Trump's orange skin and the size of his hands. And it it undercuts the very kind of image and brand uh, that he's trying to put out there. Um, and it, it makes him look inauthentic. It makes him look like somebody um, who is trying to both, you know, kind of cash in and settle scores. Um, and I just think it's it's damaging for someone who, um, you know, hel- has held himself out as the sort of embodiment of righteousness and, and truth-telling. Um, and, and the thing is, when people get a whiff of, of hypocrisy, um, that's when, um, you know, that's when you're, you're in trouble. So I question the strategy here to go out so publicly, um, you know, in this kind of a, you know, blitzkrieg, right. as you put it. Right. Look, and, you know, it was a couple of weeks ago we had on this show Dan Hoffman, the former CIA station chief in Moscow, who took some shots at, uh, at, at John Brennan, the, the, his former boss, the former CIA director, for his... Uh, some of what he's been saying about President Trump uh, calling him vile and a demagogue and, uh, you know, all of which a lot of people may agree with. But uh, Hoffman's point was uh, that's probably not something that a former CIA director should be doing. I think you could say that even more for a former FBI director. The FBI, it's so important, uh, as Comey himself recognizes, that the FBI be perceived as above politics, as having no partisan uh, motivations at all. And, you know, granted, he's a private citizen uh, right now, and he could say whatever he wants. But, you know, what struck me most about the Stephanopoulos interview was at the very end when he's asked whether President Trump should be impeached. Uh, And this is after he said that Trump is morally unfit to be president and is a liar, uh, something that I don't think a lot of people Um, certainly listeners of this show would disagree with, but he said, no, he didn't think that uh, Trump should be impeached. He he thought that would let the American people off the hook, this is Comey's words, and have something happen indirectly that I believe they are duty-bound to do directly. People in this country need to stand up and go to the voting booth and vote their values. He's saying that the American people are duty-bound to uh, vote Donald Trump out of office, which I think is something unprecedented for a former FBI director to be saying. Uh, You know, we never – we almost never hear from former FBI directors. I mean, Louis Freed disappeared. He was – had a famously, um, you know – uh, well, really he bad. set up a private investigative firm for money, and uh, well, yeah, but I'm uh, saying he's makes not, big bucks, right? But uh, he has stayed out, clients. but he is staying yeah. out of the partisan fray. And you know, the New York Times put it. Um, you know, Comey um, is a guy who's talked a lot about uh, the importance of keeping the FBI um, out of politics. Uh, that's essentially what his argument has been about his behavior in both. Um, you know, how he handled the Clinton investigation and how he's handled the Trump investigation. And then, as the New York Times put it, when he's out on this book tour, he's essentially weaponized himself against uh, the Trump administration. And yes, I mean, I get it. uh, And I understood it with Brennan, too, on a personal level. 
Um, you know, Trump has gone after law enforcement and the intelligence community um, in, in an unprecedented way, really assaulted them. So they have this strong sense of a need to, to fight back. Um, but the question is how you do it. And if you put yourself in the, in the partisan fray like that, um, that may not be the best thing for institutions that are supposed to be outside of politics. And you can't, you know, if you are the former CIA director or the former um, FBI director and you have associated yourself so closely with those institutions and, and their values, you can't just uh, separate them, separate yourself from them. You have some duty, um, you know, uh, right. uh, you know, kind of in, in, in perpetuity uh, to make sure that you continue to protect those um, those institutions, I think. Um, and, um, and, I, and you also, another point that people have made, and I think this came up in the Savannah Guthrie interview on, on NBC's Today Show, that, you know, if we get to an obstruction case against the, the president, uh, whether it be uh, in, in, in the form of an impeachment trial or or criminal charges, Comey's going to be a key witness. And uh, to display the kind of bias that he clearly has against uh, uh, President Trump, all for legitimate reasons, Trump fired him, is probably not helpful uh, to Robert Mueller. And you do have to wonder what um, what Mueller uh, thinks about what Comey's been saying. But I don't want to be too hard on Comey here because I think uh, down the road we want to get him as a guest on Skullduggery. And uh, so uh, uh, too harsh, <laughs> uh, too many harsh words may not uh, achieve our purpose there. Uh, one final uh, uh, beat uh, on, on another uh, development this week is Michael Cohen, who... Um, who, um, you know, is uh, resisting, uh, uh, trying to resist having his uh, uh, his material be uh, turned over to prosecutors before uh, somebody else can take a look at it and uh, exclude it on attorney-client privilege. Um, and we also learned of uh, Cohen among his clients, whose identity he was trying to protect, was Sean Hannity. Yeah, there were um, audible gasps in the courtroom. Our own Hunter Walker was there um, and and heard them. Um, that was the uh, secret client that uh, Cohen um, and and his lawyers didn't want to reveal. Um, can you say? I think at the, can, can you say with certitude that Michael Cohen has never been your lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say with certitude that I've never had a lawyer named Michael Cohen, but it's not the same one. Uh, <laughs> right. But there you know, are many look, Michael Cohens look, out there. Yeah, look, yeah. I mean, the 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 thing about um, uh, Sean Hannity um, is, um, you know, he he had uh, he's been talking about on his show uh, this story and and uh, uh, you know for for all this time and uh, never thought to reveal that he had a, a, a professional relationship with Michael Cohen, that he was his lawyer. Now, he said, you know, that uh, they've talked about some things, but uh, he's not you know, didn't formally retain him as his lawyer. But still, um, I, you know, I think this is a bigger issue for Sean Hannity than for Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen has his own uh, problems, which I think are much more serious. Um, but, and the question um, is how big of an issue it is going to be for uh, for President Trump. And we've right. got, I should point out, uh, a great guest uh, coming up soon, Adam Davidson of The New Yorker, who's going to talk about just what the Michael Cohen um, uh, investigation could mean for the president. But before we do that, I want to go back to uh, Nikki Haley, Russia and sanctions with our first guest, one of the country's foremost experts on sanctions, uh, the former 
former sanctions czar at the State Department, Dan Freed with us. Uh, Ambassador Freed, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Um, I'm not used to being called a czar, however. Um, coordinator, badly, coordinator. As I well, given given your background in Russia and <laughs> Russia, you served in Russia, if I recall correctly. Um, I, I I thought I'd take the liberty of calling you a czar. Hmm. Well, I'll I'll accept it under protest. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. The uh, developments this week uh, uh, involving Ambassador Haley were pretty extraordinary. She goes on uh, national TV on Sunday and says the uh, White House or the Secretary of Treasury is going to announce new sanctions on Russia the very next day uh, relating to its support for the Assad regime in Syria. And then the very next day comes and no such sanctions are announced. And it soon becomes clear that the White House is not going to do what uh, Nikki Haley just said um, it was going to do. Uh, What do you make of this? I find it an odd episode because it comes at a time and interrupts a narrative which was not only substantively, but also seemingly politically useful for this administration. That is, on in the end of March, the Trump administration worked closely with the British and European allies to um, retaliate against the Russian attempted assassination of two people in Britain using nerve gas and expelled a bunch of Russian diplomats. We followed up on April 6th with some pretty focused and strong sanctions. The first time the Trump administration has moved beyond the Obama model of sanctions uh, against the Russians. And full disclosure, I was the one of the architects and the chief negotiator with the Europeans of the Obama sanctions against the Russians. And I give full credit to Trump people for taking the next step. And they said this was, Trump people said this, the April 6 sanctions were in retaliation for a whole bunch of bad Russian actions. Now, those were strong steps. In that context, the Trump administration spokesmen were finally able to say that the narrative that somehow they're soft on Russia was wrong. Look, they're going beyond where the Obama people were. And they, for the first time, had a, a serious argument. They had a reasonable case to make. So why then this mishandling of um, Nikki Haley's, um, I think, tactically ill-advised but strategically reasonable disclosure of the next shooter drop? I don't get it. Now, in, well, but in isn't my, the answer isn't the answer that the president is just not on board with what his advisors want him to do by being tough on Russia. I mean, this is, we've, we've seen this time and again where the president is, you know, loath to say anything critical about Vladimir Putin, uh, continues to suggest that, uh, he can, he can work with the Putin regime, says nice things about the Russian president. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, even when he calls to congratulate him, doesn't follow the, uh, script that his advisor present for uh, uh, present to him uh, telling him not to congratulate Putin on what US officials saw as a fraudulent election 
That's right. And I find it puzzling and disheartening that we cannot embed even good steps that this administration takes, like the April 6 sanctions, into a policy framework which is sustainable. Now, the pro- when President Trump says that we ought to be trying to work with Russia in various areas, he has a point. The, a strong policy toward Russia does not mean that you refuse to look for areas of cooperation. It does mean that you don't pay the Russians in advance for that cooperation by allowing them to run over you with their own aggressive actions. Ronald Reagan and his Secretary of State George Shultz managed this trick pretty well in the mid-1980s. They embedded into a single coherent Soviet policy elements of cooperation and elements of resisting Soviet aggression, and it worked out reasonably well. In fact, it worked out spectacularly well in the 1980s. It's not impossible to construct this kind of a policy, but the Trump administration has difficulty doing it. What, Dan, now, if what, you, what yeah. is, what is, so what is the impact uh, in terms of our foreign policy when, uh, you, when, when your, your Russia policy uh, from the outside seems so incoherent and confusing and contradictory? What, what consequences does, does that have? All these years that you have in the State Department, you must have a good sense of, of, of that. It weakens your ability to gather together a powerful coalition of like-minded countries to resist Russian aggression. Because when, I'm sure that Wes Mitchell, the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, and Fiona Hill, the Senior Director at NSC, who also covers Russia, have consistent views, and they and I know them both. They probably express them with their usual logic and eloquence. But when they're talking to their European and other interlocutors, the question, the thought bubble over the head of those interlocutors is, do these people speak for the administration? That weakens our ability to build the coalition because people wonder, well, who's really making policy? And that's a shame well, that, yeah, for obvious this, reasons. This has to be devastating uh, for Nikki Haley because, I mean, right now she is the voice of American foreign policy, or at least she was. And then to be undercut like that uh, must must really uh, hurt her uh, ability to um, to speak um, for the for, uh, for 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 the administration and for the country on these issues. Well, it's look. It, it's a story this week. I wouldn't put too much in it. Um, in other administrations, there have been examples of UN ambassadors and others getting a little ahead of themselves. When I heard Nikki Haley speak on Sunday, I thought that she had gone too far, not because she was being too tough, I thought she was appropriate, but because she revealed a lot about the the nature of the sanctions we were about to take. And you don't do that in advance, because if you signal whom you're going to sanction, they they uh, pull their money out of the banks where it can be frozen. But wouldn't you expect, the sanctions. wouldn't you expect uh, for her to have done that, that there would have been an interagency process uh, and th- that would have arrived at a, de- at a decision? Uh, and then the president, um, you know, saw her on television and reacted. But the, I mean, I think we learned that the, the, the White House had already sent talking points over to the RNC um, so that they could communicate 
uh, the the sanctions. So, and the last time it, sanctions were imposed, um, it seemed like there was a a a, a full uh, interagency process that uh, uh, you know that was coordinated and and carefully communicated. So, um, so 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 did she really get? Uh, over her skis, um, or did the president just react uh, because, you know, impulsively seeing her on television? Well, look, I don't know what happened. I thought tactically it was, it's always a mistake to be too specific about a future sanctions action, even 24 hours in advance. And I guess a little strange to announce it on a Sunday. That's a sanctions rule. You You don't telegraph stuff in advance. But that's that's a relatively minor thing, and there were, I thought there were better ways to handle it. But look, in my experience, if you have a choice between if you have a choice between operational incompetence and malevolence to explain a weird move by any administration, incompetence is usually the right answer, which means you just may have had a messy, incomplete, clumsy interagency process. Well, the, which the, the counter- happens a lot in this administration, and I'm sorry about that. Right. I don't, I don't wish them ill. Yeah. But the counter to that is that there's something more going on here. Uh, FBI, former FBI director James Comey said this week, got a lot of attention, that it's possible, in his view, the Russians have something on President Trump. What do you think? Do you agree? I know, and this this podcast is called, you know, what's the name Duggery. of it? Skullduggery. Right. Well, then we are up against what I call the black box, which occurs in every discussion in Washington where these issues are raised. And that black box is labeled Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump. And we do not know the contents, or at least I do not know the contents of that black box, I do not know when that black box will be opened. We can all speculate about it. There, there is vari- various evidence to support various interpretations. We don't know. And in cases like this, theories can be constructed, but we're, you know, we're not going to know until we know. We don't know when that black box will be opened. We do not know the contents of that black box. We may never. I suspect we will know more than we do now. Well, I would so, uh, I would recommend a book to you uh, that just came out. Russian Roulette is the title. It might help you understand. Yes, I've issues. heard of it. Yes, I've heard of it, and I I believe it speculates uh, with some basis um, about the various informed theories. speculation, you, Ambassador. Informed speculation. I know. I know. Um, there are various levels of ways to address this. Um, there is, at the strategic level, quite apart from any secret information or blackmail or compromise or anything like that, at the strategic level, part, the, the European hard right and part of the American hard right seem to have an odd fascination with and sympathy toward strongmen in general and Mr. Putin in particular. There seems to be, and this is more pronounced in Europe, but you see elements of it in on Breitbart and in st- some of what Steve Bannon used to write and say, this notion that Russia was defending a kind of a version of the West, but a hard right distorted West, um, a kind of 
bastion of so-called Christianity against the outside barbarians or something, which is very much the Russian narrative and rooted in a tradition which actually, in my opinion, undermines the Western tradition, which is also based on the Enlightenment. Um, that's a weird ideological fascination, and I find it um, just poisonous in terms of mobilizing the free world, and I use that term without irony, to deal with 21st century challenges from autocrats or would-be autocrats. I think that's a, a, a challenge of our time. Um, I think Russia has placed itself on the side of autocracy in principle. Uh, I think they want to discredit democracy in principle, the better to defend Putin's form of rule inside Russia. And this is not new. Russian regimes have done this dating back to the czars. You protect your internal autocracy, which is coupled usually with a lack of reform, by outside aggression, uh, both ideological and physical. This, this goes back to the czars, you know, uh, 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 200 years ago. Well, let's not go back quite that far. Let's just go back to your years at the State Department because you were there right. when uh, uh, Putin annexed Crimea and intervened in Ukraine and the Obama administration responded with sanctions. You helped prepare uh, yep. on uh, various Russian entities, financial institutions, and Russian figures who were uh, deemed to be uh, instrumental in the decision to go into Ukraine. Did they work? Well, I'd answer that in three parts. They worked in two ways and not in a third. They worked to limit Russian ambition in Ukraine. Western resistance in the form of sanctions and even more important, Ukrainian resistance on the ground caused Putin to pull back from his more extravagant objectives. You may or may not remember this notion of Novorossiya, the new Russia, this this claim that about 40% of Ukraine actually belonged to Russia. I think the, the Russians or some of them were preparing the ground to annex huge parts of Ukraine. They dropped that like a hot potato as the Ukrainians and the West resisted. So I think that's one thing. I think sanctions had something to do with that. That's one thing they did. Second thing the sanctions did was put pressure on Russia to accept the so-called Minsk framework, which the French and the Germans negotiated. The Minsk framework is not perfect, but it does provide for the Russians to get out of the Donbass and to restore Ukraine's eastern border. It has nothing to say about Crimea, so it's, it's, it's not complete. But it's not a bad framework for um, uh, solving the Donbass problem. Now, I think sanctions had something to do with that framework, getting Russia to acknowledge that the Donbass belongs to Ukraine. Sanctions have not worked in getting Russia to actually respect and implement Minsk. They've not done so, which leads to suspicion that the sanctions aren't enough and we need to escalate them. Uh, the Trump administration appointed a first-rate former career diplomat, Kurt Volker, full disclosure, we worked together for many years, um, as the special envoy on Ukraine, and Kurt's the, got credibility in Kyiv and in Europe, uh, and he's the guy who could help broker a deal. I think um, he's going to need heavier sanctions on the Russians to convince Putin to back down. So sanctions can work 
but they're not a perfect tool and they don't give you everything. They're, they give you something. They give you some influence. Ambassador Freed, uh, explain to us uh, who should be sanctioned and how, how do you put pressure on Putin to change his ways without hurting uh, you know, the Russian economy, without hurting and, – and, 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 and with those second and third order effects that could have a real impact on the European economy, for, for example. Right. So what are the sort of smart sanctions here against the Russians? Well, we did – the Obama administration did something unusual for sanctions. Usually the Americans impose sanctions and then we push or plead with our allies to do the same. In this case, we reversed the process. We negotiated first with the Europeans and then worked in tandem to impose similar, not identical, but pretty, pretty similar sanctions. Never done it before, and it was worth it because the Europeans, we found, stepped up. And so we had similar sanctions. Now, those sanctions have a price. Everybody, all, all policymakers always look for an option which is all gain, no pain, no risk. Hint, they don't exist. Okay, <laughs> such options are not real. So sanctions hurt, but we designed them so they hurt the Russians a lot more. Now, looking forward, there are sort of two schools of thought on uh, escalatory options using sanctions against the Russians. One school of thought is take the um, economic sanctions we've got on finance, on energy, and intensify them, especially in the financial side. And there are things we could do. There, there, there is, as the saying goes, headroom in those sanctions. There's another school of thought which says, mm, no, don't go after the Russian economy generally. Go after Putin's particular cronies. Go after the people who handle his money, whom he favors, who have gotten rich because of Putin. Go after them. And that both ideas need to be explored. I think we need both kinds of tools. Let available. me ask you, you were, uh, you were there, of course, uh, after the Russians uh, attacked our election, uh, the cyber attacks, right. the social media, uh, uh, Facebook ads, and all the other things they did um, to meddle in our democratic process. Uh, and by the way, I think some people think that uh, – uh, at least one motivation for that may have well have been retaliation for the uh, Ukraine and Crimea sanctions. But, um, uh, but it's also true that the kinds of actions you just spoke about going after Putin's cronies, uh, going after the, the oligarchs was talked about at the time while you were there as a potential response uh, to the uh, election interference by the Russians, yet the administration you served didn't go there. Why not? Well, um, the Obama administration actually did go after a number of Russian cronies because of Ukraine. So we started that with that. Um, but that doesn't make your other point incorrect. The Obama administration, in my view, and I was in it, okay, I was working on sanctions then, did not respond with adequate, adequate strength to the Russian interference in our elections. The Obama people uh, gave us very little time and were very late. And so what we did in December 2016 was a very light set of sanctions, which I think was frankly inadequate, and I said so at the time. 
Uh, we went after some cyber targets. We expelled some diplomats. Uh, we went, you know, we sanctioned some of the intel services, but those sanctions are not, against intelligence services are not apt to be terribly effective, and we knew it. This was not enough. What should have and what should have the Obama administration done, and why do you think they didn't uh, respond uh, aggressively enough? Well, I think for look, I don't know, but I suspect that they were in that they worried about appearing to be um, before the election. They worried about uh, uh, the appearance of politics and letting politics in an electoral context. Uh, dictate certain decisions. After the elections, I think they would they they should have ramped up the pressure, but they decided not to go there. I don't know. You should ask them. Um, I think that it was an inadequate response, um, and I think the the Russians understood it as inadequate. Uh, the Russians are pretty good at calculating costs and benefits. They they judge resistance to their aggression. What they said publicly has often absolutely nothing to do with their actual calculations. So I think the, uh, the Obama administration, which I think responded well to uh, Russia's aggression against Ukraine generally, and by the way, I want to give the Obama administration a lot of credit for leading NATO to put uh, to station uh, rotation on a rotational basis, military forces in the Baltics and American and NATO forces in Poland. That's a big deal. I don't think Obama's gotten enough credit for that. That was huge. Um, but I think the sanctions step was too weak. Uh, and I think the, the Russians don't have had trouble understanding just how much animosity in the American political system they have generated. And by the way, the, they weren't interfering just in the American elections. Uh, France, uh, Spain, and the Catalonia referendum, um, the Russians have been all over the place. And they have started alienating a lot of governments who previously believed that Russian aggression had nothing to do with them and now discover that it does. But I just want to be clear. Okay, you were there at the time. Uh, you believe yep. the sanctions should have been stronger, the response to the election yep. meddling. And, yep. I, I mean, what pushback did you get? What was the argument? No, we can't do this because of what? Well, uh, I got... <laughs> for a long time, I didn't get any arguments at all, just kind of a shutdown process. And... Um, I'm not going to reveal the internal discussions, but I never heard a good explanation why we didn't go, uh, why we didn't hit them as I thought they deserved to be hit. How frustrated were you about that? Extremely. Um, I think we missed an opportunity, and I thought it was especially odd because, as I said, in other areas, the Obama administration was quite forward-leaning. Now, on the NATO military deployments, that's quite striking. That's much farther than the Bush administration went after the, the Russo-Georgian War in 08. Uh, that, was, that's a, that is a serious and significant step. 
Um, you know, you don't have to ask me. Ask the Baltics how they feel. Right. Uh, so they're pretty taking, happy. The Poles are pretty happy. Taking the story forward, uh, you were still there uh, during the transition yeah. and in the early days of the uh, of the Trump administration because you were a career diplomat. Uh, and um, uh, you and I have discussed this before. You get wind once the new Trump team uh, is in office that they're about to lift even the limited sanctions that were already in place. And uh, this was something that alarmed you. Well, what I heard is that the Trump people or some of them were considering unilaterally lifting all of the sanctions on Russia, including the Ukraine sanctions that we had negotiated with the Europeans. And that they were planning to do so in exchange for nothing, but kind of as a goodwill gesture to the Russians, which I found just somewhere between shocking and astonishing that somebody would be played for such a sucker. That is, give away the sanctions, break Western unity, um, pull support from Ukraine, in exchange for what exactly? I suppose the argument would have been, well, we can be their friends in counterterrorism. But the the immediate answer to that is, that's what you think. What will they think? What will they conclude if you retreat from your position in exchange for nothing? Will they see that as a, a, a good gesture or will they see that as a sign of weakness and press for more? Russian history suggests the latter. I was um, I was not the only one who was hearing this. Other people were hearing it as well. I have I won't say more about how I knew, but I, let us say I have reason to believe that these rumors were correct, uh, and I was. It was an extremely it was an uncomfortable position for me. And um, uh, you went to. Uh... You went to members of Congress to alert them to this and to encourage them to pass the legislation that was ultimately passed, requiring, uh, in effect, stronger sanctions in response to the election. But did you ever get any insight into what was motivating the Trump people and where in the White House it was coming from? Was this Michael Flynn's doing? And, of course, he was the uh, new national security advisor at the time. Or was this coming from elsewhere? Well, I did alert my chain of command at the State Department, but yes, I also went to the Congress. I did not go to the media. Um, I, had all, I had always promised, including in congressional hearings, to work closely with Congress, and so I decided to take that pledge seriously. Um, I cannot say for sure who the originator of this colossally dumb idea without a reasonable American interest that I can discern. But uh, subsequently, and quite independent from me, reporting has come out which suggests that Michael Flynn was indeed um, interested in proceeding in this direction. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but subsequently I've learned it. Um, as for the, the motives, all uh, the rationale, all I got were some rather flimsy arguments about goodwill and working in common purpose, uh, counter-terrorism and count to counter China's influence. A lot of stuff which felt to me half-baked, ill-considered, um, 
and the notion that you back away from a common Western position, a common position of the leading free world countries, in return for nothing, from Vladimir Putin struck me as colossally dumb, even for a brand new administration. Have you? No, Obama's taken a lot of heat for the reset. You remember, I mean, still does. But that was a far more reasonable proposition than this. It was a reset, not a surrender. And what was being proposed was an actual surrender of an important American position and a betrayal of a country which was Ukraine, which was under uh, the threat of the reality of Russian aggression. Just kind of an appalling idea. And I'm not sorry I did what I did. Uh, have you been uh, questioned by Robert Mueller's people at all? Nope. Uh, or any uh, of the congressional committees that have been investigating what happened uh, with Trump and Russia policy? Nope. Well, maybe you should be. That is not up to me. <laughs> but what I, you know, what I would tell them is, is what I told you. Um, it's not like I have a, a trove of additional information that I'm hoarding. Right. Well, I'm sure the Mueller team um, listens to skullduggery, so it could be. <laughs> well, certainly they should. <laughs> yeah. Now, one more beat. Uh, uh, look, uh, of course, as a result of the legislation that did pass, the administration did impose uh, go after uh, the oligarchs in those April 6th sanctions that were no announced. Yeah, and, uh, wh that's a good, solid set of sanctions. and. Right. Full props to the uh, Trump administration for going there. What struck me was the level of detail that was uh, that was released, it, particularly about uh, uh, Mr. Deripaska, the billionaire aluminum king, one of Putin's yep. favorite oligarchs. Uh, in the Treasury announcement, they linked him to extortion, racketeering, organized crime, bribery, uh, even attempted murder, um, which was a pretty uh, heavy allegation. <laughs> allegations uh, for the U.S. government to put out there. I should remind people that uh, Mr. Deripaska, uh, Oleg Deripaska, was, of course, for many years the business partner of Paul Manafort, uh, the Trump one-time Trump campaign chairman who's now under indictment, although they had a falling out, and Deripaska was pursuing Manafort uh, for uh, it, what he believed was missing funds during the campaign, and Manafort was trying to buy him off by offering him private briefings, briefings on the uh, on the Trump campaign. Um, were you the the, the Information that was in that release about Derek Pasca and his criminal activities, uh, were you aware of those and were those things you would have wanted to put out while you were in office? Um, Derek Pasca's activities have been well known to the U.S. government since the Bush administration. Um, this was not a surprise. I thought that the professionals that it, throughout the U.S. government who prepared those April 6th sanctions did a good job. Uh, it was good to see those sanctions come out. Uh, I think it shook up the Russians who understood that uh, they could not count on the Trump administration remaining passive in the face of continued Russian aggression. Now, I'm giving the Trump... If this line were consistently held, 
then the Trump administration would have the grounds to say, look, those stories that we're soft on the Russians, that there's something going on, are false. Um, that was a solid piece of work. And the trouble is, as you've pointed out, they don't seem to maintain that line. And there is no articulation. I have not seen an articulated Russia policy. But that doesn't mean those steps are bad. Those steps are good, and the Trump administration has taken other steps uh, toward Russia, which are pretty strong. Uh, last question. It, should one of those uh, – one of the next steps be actually imposing sanctions on family members of uh, Vladimir Putin? Would that be a prudent um, course of action, do you think? I was glad to see that the Trump administration has now gone after three so-called golden children – that's a term of art, meaning the children of oligarchs who, or Putin cronies who benefit uh, from the corrupt positions of their parents. Uh, in the so-called Global Magnitsky Act, um, that's a, basically a human rights sanctions provision, uh, the Trump administration went after one golden child. On the April 6th pa- in the April 6 package, the Trump administration went after two others, including Putin's uh, son-in-law. Um, I thought that was good. I don't want to speculate as to precise targets, but I think that the April 6th package clearly points in the direction of going after uh, Putin's ruling elite, uh, his inner circle, and the, this you know, corrupt network. And I think that is a signal to Putin that he can, uh, that if he continues his aggressive actions against the United States, there will be a price to pay for him and his associates. That it's not cost free. I think that's a welcome message. Um, well, Ambassador, I thank you for uh, spending the time. Uh, always provocative to talk to you, and I hope you'll uh, come back uh, to Skullduggery in the future. Provocative, eh? That sounds like I'm in trouble. <laughs> others will be the ju- others will be the judge. Anyway, thanks for thanks Thank for joining for the us. Opportunity. Thanks yes. a lot, Dan. All right, take care. take care. We'll be back with more skullduggery. And now we have a uh, another special guest with us here today, um, Adam Davidson of the New Yorker, who wrote a quite provocative piece this week that uh, no doubt no doubt got a lot of people very excited, uh, if for no other reason than the headline: Michael Cohen and the end stage of the Trump presidency. Um, Adam, quite a uh, uh, quite a headline on the piece. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know this. Writers don't write their headlines. The editor did, although I think in it this does, case it does case, sum you up what. Ex- yeah. You ought to accept responsibility for this because it was a good headline and it's gotten a lot of people talking. So. Yes, uh, yes, and clickbait. It, I, I'd say. <laughs> well, I think it is an accurate clickbait for the Trump era. It, it's accurate to what the essay's about. You know. Um, all right. So uh, obviously uh, the. Uh, the no-knock raid on Michael Cohen's office um, was quite a development, uh, and there's still a lot we don't know. It's been reported. It's about uh, the payoffs to Stormy Daniels and uh, Karen McDougal, um, his business deals, perhaps, although we don't quite know what business deals uh, are involved here. So uh, tell us why you think this is potentially uh, fatal for the Trump presidency. So I I don't have to tell you, Michael, that um, proving collusion with Russia is really, really hard, not (laughs) not the least of which because it's an imprecise term. It isn't clearly 
a technical legal term. I certainly think, <clears throat> and as I believe you do as well, that some level of collusion clearly occurred, um, if we use the word as secret activity and coordination with someone else towards a deceitful aim or what, whatever the dictionary calls collusion, between the Trump organization, the Trump family, the Trump campaign, and people close to the Kremlin. But actually getting to the point where Robert Mueller issues a report that says, here, I've got it. Here is proof that the president actively, knowingly um, approved or directed this action. It's a really high bar, and we might not meet it. And I think I, like many, wondered if whenever Mueller's um, investigation concludes, it'll be troubling enough that people who are distrustful of, of the president will continue to be distrustful, but obscured enough that people who like him, you know, Fox News can declare victory and, and we will enter a new phase of the Trump presidency, a sort of post-crisis phase. Now, knowing the president, that wouldn't last very long but um, because there'd be some self-generated crisis, but we'd enter a post-Russia phase. And um, something I and many other people have thought is the, the president is um, – has a huge vulnerability totally separate from any potential collusion with the Russian government. And that is his business practices for many, many years and especially the last decade or so where he increasingly did business with some truly evil people around the world and some of the most corrupt – Shady characters. Shady characters. I, I mean some convicted criminals, some – To walk us through some of those financial entanglements and potential scandals um, – and, you know, connections with oligarchs and, and you know, in kleptocracies uh, in the post-Soviet Union. Tell us a little bit about some of that. Yeah. And as I say in the essay, it can become tiresome just listing them all because there's so many. But, I mean, the ones I know very well. In Azerbaijan, he partnered with the Mamadov family, which as a U.S. diplomat cable released by WikiLeaks showed um, uh, U.S. officials considered the Mamadovs corrupt even for Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan is a wildly, notoriously, <laughs> thoroughly corrupt country. Um, the family he was doing business with was at the same time almost certainly a money laundering partner with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. And, um, and the money that Trump was paid was part of a very – weird project in which a giant Trump Tower was being built in a part of the city that shouldn't support such a thing. We know a lot of the money paid was paid in duffel bags of cash. It's about— oh, no, duffel bags of cash from who to whom? Well, Trump received money. So Trump's attorneys say, we can't be guilty of anything because all we did was take money. But if someone were to show that that money came from a sanctioned entity or that Trump had partnered with the Mamadovs in a way that— um, uh, in, involved bribing a public official, such as Zia Mamadov, the guy, the, the patriarch of the family, who was minister of transportation at the time. That would be a crime. But is there right? Because I, when I was reading your recounting of all the shady deals that the Trump organization has been involved in around the world, you know, I was just looking for well, what is the potential statutory violation here? Usually, in these sorts of matters, when it's foreign business deals, it's a foreign corrupt practices. Act. It's somebody in a U.S. entity is paying off a foreign government official to get a contract or to get a business deal. Um, is there credible evidence in 
that one, uh, Azerbaijan, or the others you talk about, Panama and uh, uh, several others, do we have credible ev- evidence of a foreign corrupt practices Well, but Mike, violation? I mean, I want to hear uh, Adam on this, but it, it, Trump's real estate business is a very different kind of business. It's a licensing branding right. business. No, no, so I it's get not that. about the, con- the, the underlying contracts, right? And it may be more about, you know, money laundering. Yeah, so well, there, there's well, – I mean I think the yeah. the criminal areas that, that mm-hmm. we'd be interested in, one is mm-hmm. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, mm-hmm. which is basically a law, a U.S. law that says people who do business in America cannot bribe officials Government and foreign officials in overseas. A, overseas. Right. Um, and then money laundering would be another major one. He has done business with people who've been convicted of money laundering. Certainly many people have been accused of money laundering and many projects that have the telltale signs of money laundering. I'd say I would put sanctions violations there as well. Receiving money from a sanctioned entity is what's called strict liability. So even if you – The Iranian National Guard. Yeah, exactly. And then um, the – and then there – well, money laundering is a kind of a process crime. There's a predicate crime which would be – meaning – uh, you can't money launder clean money. <laughs> there has to have been a crime that you are laundering the proceeds of, and those would be things like bank fraud um, and 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 other major financial crimes. And and indeed, the people he has done business with um, are are in that soup. Now, what my reporting has shown, and I think certainly his lawyers would would agree with, is in the normal course of events, someone like Trump, if he were not president, would be highly unlikely to be prosecuted for any of these for several reasons. One is um, specifically with foreign corrupt practices, um, the Department of Justice essentially made a decision several years ago um, that it is going to be incredibly conservative in the cases it brings. Essentially what has happened is enough large companies every year find out about corruption in their own, you know, some affiliate in Pakistan paid somebody a bribe they hire a law firm to basically build the case against themselves and, you know, some mining company or whatever. They go to the Department of Justice. They say, we're guilty. Here's the full case against us. And the Department of Justice says, yes, you are guilty. Let's work out a fine. And the reason the company did all this is because the fine will be less and there will be no criminal um, violations. And then the actual unit within the Department of Justice that handles FCPA under the fraud um, division gets a cut of the fine. And so there's an awful lot of— An incentive to— An incentive to go for big dollar amount. So so that being said, I mean, this gets sort of boring and technical, but, you know, I would say if you think of this period of time where Trump is engaging with these oligarchs, so let's call it 2006 to 2000. 17, there's literally trillions of dollars flowing from laundered money from oligarchs into the U.S., to London. It's something like 10 percent of the global economy. Trump's a small little player in this. He was not going to be caught. But now that he's president, it is an entirely different story. I think that normal course of events stuff is is essentially irrelevant. Right. Okay. But I, I'm I, I got to say I'm a little bit confused here because um, uh, we have the potential for all these crimes that could have been committed, um, but 
I'm not sure that we have in any of the particulars you mentioned, and you also mentioned Georgia, and you mentioned a Trump hotel in, in Vancouver, we have a specific allegation that is being invested, that we know of that's being investigated by any entity of either a money laundering or an FCPA uh, violation. Well, we, but do we, we do know that, well, that let, let, yeah, but we do, just so we do know that Michael, because the uh, Southern District uh, in New York, uh, in their filing, they said that Michael Cohen has, his business dealings have been under investigation for months. So we at least know that. Well, much. That, that gets to the second question yeah. of what, all, what what Michael Cohen's role in, in any of, of these right. deals were. Right. But back to my question, do we have uh, a specific allegation in any of these cases uh, that is being investigated? By the government? By the yes. Department of Justice? I have no idea. I mean, right. we, you know, it, Mueller has been very good at keeping— um, <laughs> right. But I, I don't think that's the bar that journalists can possibly no, 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 hold themselves to. No, no, yeah. no, I'm not, I'm not I suggesting. I mean, do you only report not, on things when no, there's an actual no, investigation? No, 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 no. I believe we, all we report, of these, then they investigate. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, I, we believe that, <laughs> I mean, I absolutely believe all of these should be thoroughly uh, examined by us. But I'm just trying to figure out, you know, where we are and how we get. So here's from, where we are, in my opinion. Yeah, right. So. Donald Trump defined for himself or the New York Times defined for him this red line. Don't look at my personal business. This is about Russia collusion, Russia collusion. And two weeks ago, it was possible to think this will all be about Russia collusion and that Mueller might well come out with a report that says lots of people near Trump colluded with Russia. We already know that's true. Um, But Trump himself didn't know about it. And um, and then we're kind of done. And throughout that period, me and many others, I mean, I'd say the entire sort of Trump business reporting um, group has said, wait a second, colluding with Russia, if it happened and is, is something that's that's something that may have happened in the last year or two. And it and but this is a man who has built his empire on doing zero diligence deals some of the most corrupt criminals in the world. And that is what needs to be scrutinized thoroughly because for several reasons. One is the American people have a right to know. Two is the thing – the reason the Department of Justice doesn't prosecute international crimes as aggressively as I think they should, as others think they should, is because it's extremely hard you need to actually – and they do this from time to time. You have to fly FBI agents to another country, a country where they have no subpoena power, where often the host government in Azerbaijan or wherever has its own interests that run counter to the U.S. Department of Justice's interests. For example, today, it's unlikely the government of Azerbaijan is going to enthusiastically help a prosecution of Donald Trump. And so you, so, so it's very hard to, for them to get evidence. With money laundering, and we saw this very clearly with the Magnitsky case, I can take $10 million in a duffel bag from a known narco-terrorist, from a known totally corrupt Russian oligarch. I can then funnel it into the American system, be arrested, and then my lawyers can say, can you prove that that specific $10 million came from criminal activity? And it's on the burden on the prosecutors to prove that that money. So if that oligarch or that 
narco trafficker happens to have, you know, a nice restaurant that makes money that perfectly legally, he could say, oh, no, it was from that. It's a very hard case. Money to, is fungible. And yeah, it's just very exactly. Difficult to trace things it's back very to difficult to crimes. trace things back. But my contention would be that when you're dealing with financial criminals, the financial criminals can prove that they are financial criminals. The Kremlin, which we know for decades, has had a policy of amassing massive sets of data about everybody doing any significant business, both in Russia and in the former Soviet Union, just as an example. So they would have, if there is, they would have the documentary evidence that could put Michael Cohen in jail, could put Ivanka in jail, could put um, Donald Trump in jail, for all we know. What was Michael Cohen's roles in, role in these various deals, Azerbaijan, Indonesia, Georgia, that you read As far as I know, he had nothing to do with Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I mean, sorry, he had nothing to do with Azerbaijan. Georgia was fully his deal. He was the main Which um, means what man. exactly? So at the Trump Organization, there was a legal staff um, that technically reported to the general counsel. As you probably know, the Trump organization is not really an organization. Kind of it's, a mom and pop it's, shop. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a bunch of people who happen to work in the same office yeah. and do whatever Donald says at the time. But there are people who are lawyers practicing law. Some of them are deal lawyers, meaning they write up contracts and stuff. Others are litigators. Michael Cohen was neither of those. Michael Cohen was part of another group of people, mostly not lawyers, who are deal makers. These are people who... Their job is to go around the city, the country, the world, and bring Donald deals. And um, it's interesting how it worked. They didn't get commissioned. They got – they sort of at the end of the year, the Donald would decide how valuable they had been and give them some money. But there was – it was an incentive to do good work. And that was Michael Cohen's role. And he had a very special focus um, in part, you know, because through marriage he – was was connected to the former Soviet Union on the former Soviet Union. His wife is Ukrainian. His wife I is believe, Ukrainian. Right. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, so so Michael Cohen did this Georgia deal. The Georgia deal was supposed to be the first of a string of deals. Michael Cohen negotiated with Kazakhstan for a Trump Tower. Kazakhstan. He obviously, famously, was part. You know, worked with Felix Sater on the uh, Trump Tower Moscow deal. Right. But it was a very grand plan that there would. Uh, the plan, as I understand it, was to. Because they couldn't get that Trump Tower Moscow that the big man wanted so badly, they were going to have this ring of like Trump Tower Riga, Trump Tower (laughs) Baku, Trump Tower Batumi, Trump Tower Tbilisi, Trump Tower Astana, and eventually – All the places you want to go on vacation. Yes, exactly. Weird places for like luxury, you know, Yeah, here's what never comes up. Trump Tower London, Trump Tower Paris, Trump Tower Sydney. Never comes up. And why is that? Because he – so this is a period that I'm talking about, 2006-ish to, to – yeah. I mean to 2016, let's say. Um, there is growing this, this luxury five-plus star market. Some people call it six-star, seven-star market where the, the competition is to be not just a fancy hotel that charges a lot but to really be the place where society gathers. That's how you make a buck. And – there's no way that the Trump Hotel in London or Paris is ever going to be that place. But in a, in, a, in a straight business sense, a sort of, you know, third-tier market, although in Baku it was never going to be that place either, interestingly enough, because Baku does have a, um, a Ritz-Carlton and a bunch of other fancy hotels. But um, so that's part of it. The other part of it is um, 
Trump couldn't pass the due diligence that a lot of developers have, and Trump's development partners in these countries couldn't pass the due diligence that places like Ritz-Carlton Four Seasons have. So it 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 was clearly the the two sides needed each other. Um, you know, it was a right. it was a third tier guy in America doing business with third tier oligarchs and third tier markets. So um, Adam. Um, if your theory is right and this uh, raid is the kind of inflection point that uh, uh, potentially leads to the end of the Trump presidency, then there are other things that still have to kind of happen. And A lot. <laughs> one, one of those – well, a lot. I mean political, illegal. But one of those things in all likelihood is that Michael Cohen would have to flip um, because maybe they got – you know, enough records uh, uh, to tie criminal activity to Trump. But more likely, they're going to need uh, Cohen to lead them there and to cooperate. And so you've spent a lot of time reporting on Cohen. You've interviewed him. You know him. Uh, is this a guy this, – this is a guy, by the way, who is out there tweeting, I will always protect at POTUS and I think was quoted in Vanity Fair saying, I'll take a bullet for him. So is this a guy that you think – uh, will um, cooperate with the government, will flip? I think we all know that truly loyal people are those who scream all the time about how loyal they are. Um, <laughs> um, I, I've dealt with a lot of people in the Trump circle. I have, I have found them to be an incredibly transactional group. And um, I I can't think of anybody who... I've talked to who who has expressed true love for Donald Trump, right. true and, admiration, and has true he closeness. Earned their loyalty. Yeah, and so I I have not had that conversation with Michael Cohen. I, I didn't know him that closely, um, but maybe he's the one guy who really loves the guy um, from friends well, of his. Well, isn't it? Didn't another one of Trump's lawyers, yes. Jay Goldberg, just warn Trump that uh, that Cohen could flip? Yes. And, I mean, I talked to somebody who knows Trump very well, who knows Cohen very well, and said, look, if he's facing 18 months, he's not going to flip. Nobody flips for 18 months. If he's facing 18 years, everybody flips. So it's a question of what are the charges and how serious they and are. And I should and, point out that his initial comments after that raid – uh, talked about uh, the hardship this was uh, on his family. When I read those, uh, I, it immediately occurred to me that Cohen was at least flippable. But I, I totally agree with you that um, well, and he gonna, also it, it would depend entirely on just how severe the charges. Although would be I would against not, him. I would not put it past the Trump. F- and for me, my thought is that Ivanka Jr. and Don, <laughs> Ivanka Jr. Ivanka <laughs> and Don Jr. are the most immediately vulnerable. I say this because it really was Cohen, Ivanka, and Don Jr. who were the the kind of ambassadors of the Trump organization, the people doing these international deals. Um, Ivanka and Don Jr. did email a lot. We know that they are not the best at being careful in their emails. I mean, Don Jr. is famous. I love it. <laughs> email and um, great reporting by Andrea Bernstein and others at WNYC and ProPublica showed that um, Don Jr. and Ivanka emailed each other about misleading the public uh, uh, in regards to Trump Soho and openly in email said, boy, we broke the law. Let's hope no one finds out. Yeah, Don't worry. These, no one's going to find out. these guys are criminals, they're not the most careful criminals. Yeah. But I just want to go back one second on on Cohen and kind of his uh, – whether, whether his kind of posture may be changing a little bit because he did also after that raid – 
uh, he did uh, kind of compliment the FBI, right? He, he said that they were extremely courteous, professional, and respectful. Meanwhile, it was the president, I think probably that same day, saying, you know, they broke into my lawyer's office. Uh, so that kind of uh, divergence there, I think, is worth uh, noting. Trump and then is- the, the, other, the other thing, just quickly, and Mike, uh, y- you know, this is a subject that I know interests you. Uh, on that same Friday, Trump calls Cohen, right, and talks to him. Yeah. You know, which is which is uh, insane, which is insane. I'm sure his lawyers, well, he, maybe he didn't consult his lawyers, but it is also reminiscent of communications that he had with Michael Flynn. Right. That uh, you wrote, wrote sure. About. Yeah. Look, uh, by by the by Trumpian standards, I don't know how insane it was. It seems to me perfectly in keeping with Trump's pattern of uh, uh, of of reaching out to those who might do him uh uh, might do him harm uh, and uh, reestablishing their um, uh, their connection. But look, um, uh, before we uh, leave uh, the Russia matter, you said you know it may be that nothing's going to come of it, and uh, we should look at other uh, potential uh, criminal activity that might be out there or might be investigated. Um, we did have a development this week that I thought was uh, uh, kind of interesting and. Um, uh, McClatchy, reported that Michael that that the FBI and Mueller had evidence that Michael Cohen was in Prague uh, during the 2016 campaign. Now this is significant because as you know the Steele dossier makes the allegation that Michael Cohen did go to Prague, met with uh, a uh, a Russian agent there, and they discussed uh, collusion relating to the uh, to the presidential campaign. Cohen denied it, uh, said. Uh, and showed a copy of his passport that it didn't, uh, uh, and that he was not in Prague at the time that, uh, and uh, had never been to Prague in his life. Yes. Yes. Now, now you have pointed out and, and, and just one more beat here. He having sued Buzzfeed and fusion GPS, the private investigative firm for defamation for, Airing this allegation has now, in light of the raid on his um, uh, on his office and home, dropped the lawsuit, which a lot of people think may be a uh, a clue. Now, um, uh, he just tweeted the other day. Uh, five days ago, after the McClatchy story. Bad reporting, bad information, and bad story by same reporter at McClatchy. No matter how many times they write it, I have never been to Prague. I was in L.A. with my son, proven. Never been to Prague. You pointed out something just as we Yeah, in were January 2017, here. the Wall Street Journal said that Michael Cohen told them he had been to Prague in 2001, not 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 uh, on this trip. So we have Michael Cohen in a contradiction. Yes, shockingly. <laughs> right. I will also point out something else. So the dossier says there's this period of time in August. It, does, it, it mentions a date. I forget, August 26, something, 2016. There's this period of time, we don't know the exact date, where Michael Cohen went to Prague. And Michael Cohen's response was to show his passports, show it had no stickers for Europe at that time or Prague at that time, and also that um, showed a lot of proof that on the day they mentioned he he was with his brother – sorry, he was with his son in Los Angeles. Um, I – but nothing about that entire period of time. Now, any of us, if, if someone accused me of something that I really wanted to disprove, how hard would it be, especially if I was traveling 
domestically to show car rental receipts, hotel receipts, credit, you know, even a credit card statement that showed I shopped at the Starbucks in the Grove in downtown Los Angeles or something. Um, it's in this day and age, it's very easy to document your presence for any period of time. And he has not done that. Roger Stone did that to show that he was not meeting with Julian Assange. But on the other hand, there's nothing documenting that we know of that's documenting his presence there. Credit card receipt. I mean, when no, he, no, there, absolutely. he must have yeah, yeah, covered yeah. up his tracks. Uh, and, just, and, it is, and it is, I think, worth noting that, you know, for— uh, all throughout the course of of this uh, this story and and scandal, you know, when a story breaks and a lot of stories break because people are leaking all the time, they are pretty quickly confirmed by other news organizations, and that has not happened in this case. I will note, however, that Peter Stone, one of the two authors of the McClatchy story, who I used to work with years ago, uh, is I think the nephew of I. F. Stone, <laughs> one of the great <laughs> investigative Stone, reporters. Yeah, is he Stone? Stone. So yeah. he's got good investigative DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, well, that does lead me to my uh, Izzy Stone story. Of course, uh, <laughs> this is what I'm here for, yes, Mike. Yes, to, yes. You know, many years ago, I had I had the opportunity to meet the great man, great investigative journalist of the 50, 40s, 50s, and uh, and 60s, uh, now uh, deceased. Um, and I told him that um, we had something in common because my childhood nickname was Izzy. And he <laughs> inscribed one of his books to me from one Izzy to another who knows the burden of having the name Izzy. So uh, can I quickly, because you had asked yeah. me, so how does he, how does this lead to his impeachment right. or whatever? And and I just want to quickly just say how I see it. Right. And, you know, as they say, predictions are very hard, especially about the future. But... Um, the political story ultimately comes down to um, to polls, to, to, to support for Trump among this base. And I'm willing to concede that there's some percentage, let's call it 25 percent of the people, hardcore, the hardcore, the people who he could shoot on Fifth Avenue. Exactly. And who is still who are never going to the people abandon. who watch Hannity, uh, yeah. another one of Michael yeah. Cohen's yeah. clients. Yes. Right. right. I, I don't have any pathway in my mind to converting them. However, they don't even make up a majority of well, no, they make up a, a major, they make up a significant percentage of, of the Republican base and certainly in some very dark red districts they make up a decisive percentage. But there's plenty of purple districts where you will have um, I expect if the things that seem to be likely to be true, doing business with really evil people, really bad people and and either knowingly or through willful blindness, through deliberately not knowing, um, Trump aided and abetted them. And if we find out the fullness of those details, I, I think it's going to be hard. Um, I think we're going to see dramatic softening. That would be my sharpest prediction in his support. Now, it's hard to get to two-thirds of the Senate, which would be necessary to remove him from office. Um, I'd say the, the fact pattern has to be dramatic. But in the story, I use the example of the Iraq war where we see something going from 70 percent favorable to seven, more than 70 percent unfavorable. And those people on the ground who are seeing the real facts in Baghdad, like myself, knew that was going to happen. We knew this was a disaster. We didn't know exactly how long it would take, but we knew there was no way the, the American people would forever support this war. Similarly, with the financial crisis, we went from bubble to disaster very quickly. And there were people, and I was late to it, but I was before the mass 
um, of, of the American people who was able who were able to see through facts on the ground. Oh, the story, the real story, the evidentiary story is very different from what the public thinks. I would say the evidence will show that Donald Trump is not he is he ran a sad, bad business whose main growth strategy was doing business with some of the worst people on earth. And I do think that will become something far more people understand and that will hurt him. And one way uh, that this could happen, this was laid out by uh, Noah Feldman, a a law professor um, and a columnist for Bloomberg View, how this could happen. And it shows that that one other very significant piece of the Michael Cohen story is the fact that it is being done by – uh, federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York rather than Mueller um, is that um, those prosecutors are not constrained at all in the way that Mueller is in terms of the mandate and the scope of the investigation. They are you know, professionals. Uh, they, can, they can investigate uh, Cohen as much as they want essentially. Um, and while um, if they did find uh, crimes that uh, were tied to Donald Trump, some kind of a conspiracy, they could not indict uh, the president because they, they would have to follow the guidance of the Justice Department, which says that a sitting president can't be indicted. But uh, as um, as Noah Feldman points out, they could make him an unindicted co-conspirator and that would be uh, would become public. It did in the Nixon case. That could have a huge impact, I think, on the on that uh, uh, population of Americans um, who you're talking about, not the hardcore, hardcore who are immovable, uh, but the rest of the country. Um, and in political terms, uh, if – and this is a big if obviously, but, um, uh, but th- that uh, could change the comp- political complexion and potentially lead to impeachment. But uh, I think we're uh, we're still uh, there's still some pretty big gaps here in order to get to that point. Uh, but Adam Davidson, you have at least uh, outlined a potential roadmap uh, for those who want to see the end of the Trump presidency. So thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thank you, guys. This was awesome. Thanks to Ambassador Dan Freed and Adam Davidson for joining us this week. Next week, there's a special episode of Skullduggery on Friday, April 27th at 9 a.m. We'll be live streaming on yahoo.com from the museum in Washington, D.C. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. We'll talk to you next week.